Hear the word of God from a selection of passages from Joshua chapters 13 through 21. Starting in chapter 13. When Joshua had grown old, the Lord said to him, You are now very old, and there are still very large areas of land to be taken over. This is the land that remains, all the regions of the Philistines and Geshurites, from the Shihor River on the east of Egypt to the territory of Ekron on the north, all of it counted as Canaanite, though held by five Philistine rulers in Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron, the territory of the of the Avites, down to verse 6, as for all the inhabitants of the mountain regions from Lebanon to Misrephoth Maim, that is, all the Sidonians, I myself will drive them out before the Israelites. Be sure to allocate this land to Israel for an inheritance, as I have instructed you, and divide it as an inheritance among the nine tribes and half of the tribe of Manasseh. The other half of Manasseh, the Reubenites and the Gadites, had received the inheritance that Moses had given them east of the Jordan, as he, the servant of the Lord, had assigned it to them. It extended from Aror on the rim of the Arnon Gorge and from the town in the middle of the gorge and included the whole plateau of Medaba as far as Dibon, that is, the whole kingdom of Og in Bashan, who had reigned in Ashtaroth and Edrei. He was the last of the Rephaites. Moses had defeated them and taken over their land, but the Israelites did not drive out the people of Geshur and Makkah, so they continued to live among the Israelites to this day. But to the tribe of Levi he gave no inheritance, since the food offerings presented to the Lord, the God of Israel, are their inheritance, as he promised them. This is what Moses had given to the tribe of Reuben, according to its clans. The territory from Aror, on the rim of the Arnon Gorge, and from the town in the middle of the gorge, and the whole plateau past Medaba to Heshbon, and all, and all its towns on the plateau, including Dibon, Bamoth Baal. This list of land distribution goes on for all 12 tribes, and then finishes in chapter 19, verse 48. Verse 48, these towns and their villages were the inheritance of the tribe of Dan, according to its clans. When they had finished dividing the land into its allotted portions, the Israelites gave Joshua, son of Nun, an inheritance among them, as the Lord had commanded. They gave him the town he asked for, Timnath Sarah, in the hill country of Ephraim, and he built up the town and settled there. These are the territories that Eleazar the priest, Joshua son of Nun, and the heads of the tribal clans of Israel assigned by Lot at Shiloh in the presence of the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And so they finished dividing the land. Chapter 20. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Tell the Israelites to designate the cities of refuge, as I instructed you through Moses, so that anyone who kills a person accidentally and unintentionally may flee there and find protection from the avenger of blood. When they flee to one of these cities, they are to stand in the entrance of the city gate and state their case before the elders of that city. Then the elders are to admit the fugitive into their city and provide a place to live among them. 
If the avenger of blood comes in pursuit, the elders must not surrender the fugitive, because the fugitive killed their neighbor unintentionally and without malice aforethought. They are to stay in that city until they have stood trial before the assembly, and until the death of the high priest who is serving at that time. Then they may go back to their own home in the town from which they fled. So they set apart Kadesh and Galilee in the hill country of Naphtali. Any of the Israelites or any foreigner residing among them who killed someone accidentally could flee to these designated cities and not be killed by the avenger of blood prior to standing trial before the assembly. Chapter 21. Now the family heads of the Levites approached Eleazar the priest, Joshua son of Nun, and the heads of the other tribal families of Israel at Shiloh and Canaan, and said to them, The Lord commanded through Moses that you give us towns to live in, with pasture lands for our livestock. So, as the Lord had commanded, the Israelites gave the Levites the following towns and pasture lands out of their own inheritance. Down to uh, verse 41. The towns of the Levites in in the territory held by the Israelites were 48 in all, together with their pasture lands. Each of these towns had pasture lands surrounding it. This was true for all these towns. So the Lord gave Israel all the land he had sworn to give their ancestors, and they took possession of it and settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their ancestors. Not one of their enemies withstood them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hands. Not one of all the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Every one was fulfilled. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Sarah. That was a lot of names. Sorry for the technical difficulties. We got a new computer because we were having technical difficulties with the old computer, and this was the solution. So we're working out the kinks. Um, So thank you for your patience with us in that. Uh, So a lot of names, right? I didn't have the whole thing read. I wanted to give you the essence of it. Um, And I want to show you six maps, because you got to see the map to get an idea. I'm going to go through these quickly. So the first map is... Genesis 10, the list of nations. When God, after the flood, God talks about how the people go out and they spread. And this is right before we learn about Abraham. So we'll look at that map. So you can see, if you, it's kind of small, but there's, there's all these nations go around this whole map. And then if you look at that little box right in the middle, right where Israel is, there's those Canaanite nations. And that's the nations that, that, that's the promised land. God didn't say conquer at all. He says, this is going to be your land. This is, this is the promised land. Next map shows the three military campaigns of Joshua and the people. You can see how they were called to, to inhabit and, and to defeat these city-state, uh, all these little city-states and the land promised to them by Abraham. The next map is... If, if the allotment was perfect, everything that's in those 13 chapters or nine chapters, this is what it would look like if it was all fulfilled. Uh, they would all have equal proportions of land and different tribes would, would control different parts of the region. Uh, the next map is the best they did. This is what the kingdoms look like under David and Solomon. They never conquered Philistia, uh, 
you see it down there, or Phoenicia. Uh, they got close with David. Um, next slide. This is what's coming. God knew this was coming. This is what the Assyrians did. And if, if they would have stuck with God, they would have kept their land. And, but instead, because they did, were disobeyed God, the other groups around them were always going to wage war. And somebody was going to try to take over the whole region. And then the next slide, this is what was really coming. This is Alexander the Great, which sets, sets us up for the Messiah. So you see God's faithfulness. He's trying to give them land and protect them from this. That's what's going on here. We can look at this in hindsight and see their failures, but also see why what God giving them the land and giving them protection was really important. Because all these armies around them wanted to conquer and to have vassal states and have the, control the area. And God was like, if you're going to be a set-apart people, I have to protect you. I have to be the commander of your army. Um, so for this morning, I just want to focus on three terms, three ideas. One is a home, one is an inheritance, and the final one is peace and rest. So I've, I just, I'm trying to keep it short, just keep it honed in on those three. So what do they get? What's the point of this passage? They get a home, they get an inheritance, and they get peace and rest. A home. They get an allotment of land for each family. The best way I could describe this is just this quote from Old Testament scholar Richard Hess. He says, the allotments are supervised by Joshua, the divinely appointed leader. They represent God's gift to Israel. Since land served as the primary capital resource for ancient peoples, the allocations of land provided a material aspect to God's blessing. The people would experience peace and prosperity. However, this text is not primarily about the land itself. Instead, Joshua 13 to 21 presents the land as a divine gift. God has acquired the land, not Israel. Israel was permitted to participate in the process, but the ownership of the land belongs to uh, Israel's God. This land is now being given to Israel through Joshua as, as a divinely chosen mediator and through the casting of lots as the means of expressing the divine will. Thus, every family was given its land as a divine gift. God owned the land. Its use and enjoyment and the, and the life that it sustained were gifts from God. All gratitude and worship were due to the Lord, Israel's God, alone. So this is the best summary I found. This is what this passage is about. Now, this isn't what they did. Actually, when we get to Judges and we get to the rest of the Old Testament, we're going to see they, they, they were greedy and they, they fell short on this. So, first thing, God gives them a land. He gives them rest. He gives them a home. They didn't have a home. They were slaves in Egypt. And he gives them a home. He gives them this, this rest, this land. The second thing, an inheritance. Something to cling to and claim as their own. As long as the people as a whole stayed faithful to God and his covenant with them, they would remain in the land and prosper. And God would provide for them and protect them. He would literally be their king and their military leader. They weren't supposed to have a king or a military leader. Uh, remember, God has already reminded people earlier in the account, when they meet the commander of the Lord's army, that God's in charge of the army, not Joshua. That's very intentional, very, very inten theologically significant, the answer of the commander of the Lord's army to them. God's saying, Joshua is, is an agent, a mediator, but, he's, but I am fighting the battles for you. 
So as long as the people as a whole stayed faithful to God and his covenant with them, they would remain in the land and prosper. This is one of the central themes that God continually reminds the people of in the Torah from Genesis to Deuteronomy. They would never have to worry about losing their land or about what would happen to them because of God's provision, because of God's covenant, because of God's promise. And that leads us into number three. What did he promise them? Peace and rest. And I liked, I, I came up with five words that I think show this idea of peace and rest. What does that mean for them as a people in this land? Justice, equity, mercy, compassion, and worship. So first thing, I want to just zero in on this. Peace equals justice and equity. There are dozens of laws in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy that set this up. God's land will be a place of justice and equity. And even though they fail pretty poorly, they, they don't do that great during Judges, there's a moment, and there, there are moments in their history where they do okay. And one of those moments is as David rises to the throne before David becomes selfish and, and greedy. And in 2 Samuel 8.15, this is kind of the pinnacle of, of, of them being in the land. It says, so David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. This is the ESV translation. So part of what God was giving them in this inherit in, is, is this peace and rest, but he's giving them this this land that could be just and have full equity for all the people. I think sometimes God gets a bad rap. People read Leviticus, they make fun of it. You know, you can watch TikToks where they're making, God says this, God says that, how could this be true, whatever. I know YouTube videos, like as if, you know, Leviticus and Deuteronomy are, are this mean God out to get people. But if you really look at it in its original context, you see a God of love and mercy and compassion. A God who desires justice and equity. That leads us to the next point. Peace equals mercy and compassion. Again, dozens of the laws in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy set this up. God's land will be a place of mercy and compassion. It's fascinating that God distributes all the land to the 12 tribes, tells them you know, all these lists that Sarah read that we didn't make you sit through all the rest of them. And there's some theology scattered in there. If you want to go back and read it, you can read about Caleb and his engagement, like how Caleb and Joshua get their portions of the land. But at the end of the distribution, there's two things that we see. And one of them is the cities of refuge. Because God is a God of mercy and compassion. And there's going to be mercy and compassion in this land. This is... Um, We'll put the verse up. This is 20 verse 9. It says, Any of the Israelites or foreigners residing among them who killed someone accidentally could flee to these designated cities and not be killed by the avenger of blood prior to standing trial before the assembly. Do you think that this would be the common practice among the Canaanites, the Egyptians, the Assyrians? No. It wouldn't, they wouldn't be, this wouldn't even be on their radar. God has to tell them to do this. And notice it says the foreigner... Or the resident. God is setting up something totally radical. I mean, this is so radical for the time. 
we, we read it in hindsight, so we're not, we're not grasping how radical what God's doing here. But he's setting up these cities because people are going to die accidentally in their culture. And he even wants justice for that. And, he, and Joshua goes out of, I mean, this is already mentioned and established in Deuteronomy. So Joshua goes out of his way to remind the people of these cities. God, through Joshua, through the writers and editors of, what, of the book of Joshua, goes out of his way to explain this. And this is just one example. Reading, again, if you read Leviticus and Deuteronomy, you see God's mercy and compassion just pouring out. Take care of these people. Take care of these people. Let these people glean off the land. God knew that the rain was going to rain on some people. Were, if, you're, if, the, if, if the farm workers died in your family and the farm workers didn't die in this family, these guys are going to have better crops. Or if it rains more over here than over here, God knew that the, it wasn't going to always be equal all the time. So he sets up these systems of mercy and justice and compassion and equity so that the people could prosper. And finally, worship is rest. And when they enter into the land, God has to give this allotment to the Levites. But he doesn't give the Levites land in the same way. He gives them some pasture land. But he says, you guys are set apart to run the temple. Because the tabernacle is what it is at first, and then they're supposed to build a temple. You guys are set apart to do this because there needs to be worship in the land. God cares a lot about worship so much that he literally sets a whole tribe up devoted to the system of worship. It's pretty cool. Let's look at Joshua 21, 1 through 3. Now the family heads of the Levites approached Eleazar the priest, Joshua son of Nun, and the heads of the other tribal families at Shiloh and Canaan and said to them, the Lord commanded through Moses that you give us towns to live in with pasture lands for our livestock. So as the Lord commanded him, the Israelites gave the Levites the following towns and pasture lands. And then it talks about theirs. God cares so much about worship. He wants his people to be set apart and worship him in their daily lives. But he also wants to worship them in appointed times and spaces. Literally what we're doing today. We are a carryover. What our assembly this morning is a carryover from the assembly and this dedicated weekly worship of God that he establishes in the land for them. God cares about worship so much that he sets apart the Levites to be priests, to be this, this tribe that could make sure that worship was happening. And finally, when we think about this peace and rest, um, I want us to think about it as dwelling in the presence of God allows for wholeness, provision, and protection. This is what God's creating here. Sometimes we hear the word shalom, this wholeness, this peace. But God's providing shalom and rest. There's kind of two Greek words that, that keep, I mean, two Hebrew words that keep showing up over and over again. And I, I could sum it up in saying that when you have the presence of God, they have the tabernacle, in the middle of the tabernacle is the ark, and they, they have God's presence. They have his protection. They have his favor. You will prosper. It's a recreation of the garden. Like I mentioned earlier, unfortunately, the people failed with honoring God and his covenant. And the land was never a place filled with peace and rest, justice, equity, mercy, and compassion. There were moments. There were times, Josiah, David, where people did right. Deborah. You know, there were moments where judges or kings rallied the people and the priests or the prophets got people together 
And there were, there were moments of, of these things. But ultimately, they didn't follow God's covenant. So the judgments warned to them in Deuteronomy came true over 600 years later. And they're expelled from the land. And we're going to look at this in 2022. This is one of the main themes we're going to be preaching on through the Old Testament as a church. So what about for us today? What does Joshua 13 to 21 and the fulfillment of the promise for the people of God to get the land mean for Christians 3,000 years removed from this event? Right? I mean, it's just, if you just read it, it's just a list of land. I think this is incredibly important for us today. First thing, it's an example and model for the Christian life. And two, it reminds us that God is faithful and it reminds us of our present hope and our future hope. One, it's an example of the, and model for the Christian life. Nobody could say it better than this passage I found from Chris, Bible scholar Christopher Wright. He argues that the significance of the land for Israel applies as a Christian model, both socioeconomic ethics and more importantly, as a model of the basis of fellowship with other Christians and one another. So I'm going to put the quote up. It says, there are so many similarities. This is talking specifically about Joshua 13 to 21 to the modern church. There are so many similarities which show that the experience of fellowship in its full, rich New Testament sense fulfills, uh, analog- Sorry, fulfills theological functions for the Christians as the possession of land did for the Old Testament Israelites. Both must be seen as part of the purpose and pattern of redemption, not just accidentally, accidental or incidental to it. The explicit purpose of the Exodus was the enjoyment of the rich blessing of God in his good land. The goal of redemption through Christ is for sincere love for the brothers and sisters. And he's quoting 1 Peter 1.22 here. With all its practical, practical implications. Both are linked to the status of sonship, and the related themes of inheritance and promise, both thereby constitute proof of authentic relationship with God as part of his redeemed community. For fellowship, like the land, has limits. So the person who departs permanently from it or refuses to accept it shows that he has no real part in God's people. And he has a couple examples of this. But what Christopher Wright and kind of what I'm trying to get at here is that there's a direct parallel into them. Every, everything in the Old Testament is an example for us. Not, not everything, but the example of them and, the, and the, call, God calling them as his people is always an example for us as the church. I remember when I was in, in children's church, Sunday school, you guys remember just hearing about the Israelites over and over again, especially the judges and how they fail and they fail. And then they, what, what's the cycle? We're going to learn it in judges. It's like, thanks God for your favor. I'll take it from here. I'll do what I want. Then they fail. Then what happens? Dang it, God, why, am, why are these things happening? I need your favor again, God, please. God gives them favor, and it's just this cycle. And I remember when I had my children's church Sunday school epiphany, I was probably nine or 10, and I looked to my teacher, and I said, is this kind of an example of us? She's like, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So again, that's the pattern we need to look at this and say, how are we capable of doing the same sins as the church? I think instead of giving you some action points, I think you can just look to 1 Peter. For, I, th- I believe 1 Peter is the New Testament action point for this passage. But in 1 Peter 1.22, I want to I look at this. 
It says, now that, you have been pure, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. And I think he's, and that right after this, he talks about being born again. I think what Peter's saying is, is because we're saved, we're saved to be part of a community. And I think sometimes we forget that. But, but how does 1 Peter start off? We're going to just look at it. I think this is the application for today. It says, this letter is from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I am writing to God's chosen people, some translations say elect exiles, who are living as foreigners in the provinces of, and he lists some names. Uh, Verse 2, God the Father knew you and chose you long ago, and his spirit has made you holy. See the parallel to the covenants um, that God makes with Abraham? And then he goes on, as a result, you have obeyed him and have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 3, all praise to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have been born again because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live with great expectation and we have what? A priceless inheritance. An inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and unfiled, beyond reach of change and decay. What Peter's telling his Jewish audience here is there will never be a time again where the land of Israel will be the inheritance. That time is over. In the new kingdom of Christ, this is our inheritance. The time of Joshua, that was important. But there'll never again be a time when the land will be taken like that. There are some scholars who disagree with me, but I would, you know, I'll, I'll go toe-to-toe with them because I think this is what Peter's saying here. And Peter's teaching to them. Jesus doesn't say, get an army and reclaim the land. Jesus never tells them to do that. That's not what the book's about. The book of Acts isn't about reclaiming that land physically through a military power. The book of Acts is about fighting spiritual forces of darkness so that the, the kingdom of Jesus can go to all the nations. Peter continues on. Uh, he says, we'll go to verse 5. And though your faith, and through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive salvation, which is to be revealed to you in the last day for all to see. And then, he t- and then I'm not going to put it, I'm just going to put it up there, but he talks about these trials and testing. And I think this is a parallel. The Joshua, they had to go into the land, but they also had, they were, they had to obey God and honor his covenant. They had to expel the people out and live for him. And we as the church do that today. And then I'm going to jump to uh, verse 8. You love him even though you never have seen him. Though you do not see him now, you trust him and rejoice with, uh, with a glorious, inexpressible joy. The reward for trusting him will be the salvation of your souls. That's our inheritance. That's the reward. And then in verse 13, Peter goes on. He says, so prepare your mind for action and exercise self-control. Put on all hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed for the world. So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. This is almost like Moses talking to the people before they enter the land. You didn't know any better then. But you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scripture says, you must be holy, for I am holy. Peter is directly quoting Moses in Deuteronomy here. He's he's bringing us into this new inheritance. I mean, this is so close. He's saying, hey, there'll never be land again. The temple is going to be destroyed in 70 A.D., 
but we can worship God anywhere, anytime, because the kingdom has spread out. The spirit has gone out. Um, and the last point, it reminds us that God is faithful, and it reminds us of our present and future hope. When I preached the last part of Revelation in December, I showed how the presence of God is meant to be with his people, even though we're a sinful and rebellious people. Genesis 1 shows, through 11 shows the good creation and the rebellious humanity. Genesis 12 through Exodus 23 shows God establishing his covenant and showing that he will bring judgment against the rebellious creation, but also hope and salvation. And then in Exodus 24, he tells them how to build the tabernacle. And from that moment on, we're part of this presence of God dwelling with, the, with us. And we're still, and Isaiah points to this, Revelation points to this, Jesus points to this. So what's the other New Testament commentary on this rest? It's Hebrews 4. And I actually preached a sermon on Hebrews 4 a couple years ago. I'll put a link to that in the notes on Realm. But the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4, verse 6, Therefore, since it remains for some to enter the rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go because of their disobedience, and he's talking about the people in the wilderness who didn't get to enter the promised land, God set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David as the passage already quoted. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Here's what I want you to pay attention to. For if Joshua had given them rest... God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath day's rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter the rest, so that no one will perish by following the example of the disobedient. And then right after this, he talks about how the word of God is living and active. It penetrates our hearts. And then he says, everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him we must give an account. And I'm not going to give a sermon on this. We already, did the, we already did Hebrews. But I want us to remember, Peter is saying that our inheritance is never going to be land. It's never going to be military power. It's always us building the kingdom as God's people. And the author of Hebrews is saying this rest, they never got it because it would never be fulfilled until Christ came. And even David alludes to the fact that even when we have Christ, the final rest, we have the rest now in Christ, but we'll have the final rest one day when Jesus returns. And that's our hope. So our rest is Jesus right now and for the promised future rest. And we are called to live in that rest and be the body of Christ. So we don't get land. We don't get a home. We get a body. Look around. This is, this is our rest. We get each other. Now we're messed up, so... But the good news is, is Jesus will prevail. The body will prevail. His church will prevail. And we get to bring peace and rest to a hurting and broken world right now. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your body. I thank you for the rest you give us in you. I know that when we read a 3,000-year-old text with a bunch of maps and lists, Sometimes it seems distant from us, but as you show us through 1 Peter 1 and you show us in Hebrews 4 and you show us throughout your word, God, you love us. And even though on this earth, many of our brothers and sisters will be in, they'll never get land. They will never own a home. They will never be rich. 
They will live suffering in their whole lives, some of them in a, in a prison cell being persecuted for their faith. But they know and we know that our inheritance is in you. And God, I pray that you'd use us as your body to bring Christ-like justice, to bring Christ-like peace. And may we love one another. May that be one of the fruits that we are saved and we have this inheritance. Show us what that looks like each day, God. May we learn from Israel's example and may we be humble and faithful to just always turn back to you when we fail and fall short. God, thank you for setting it up where our inheritance is secure and it will not fail. May we always put our trust in you, our rock and our redeemer, Jesus Christ. Thank you for pouring out your spirit on your church. And I just ask these things and I just pray that you go before us as we trust you in this. In the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.